0: how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 156, and I recorded it back in September of 2017. Uh, I sat down with Eleanor Owen. She, at the time, was 96. She is currently almost 100 years old. She's 98 as of January. A fascinating woman, a fascinating life. I learned about Eleanor through my sister-in-law's sister, because Eleanor and and Karen are in a book group together, because Eleanor is writing her memoirs. It's called Mama's Fireflies, um, and she released an excerpt of that in 2012, uh, and it was called Mama's Liquor License. Eleanor's life has been extraordinary. Uh, She does use some language in this episode and uh, that when she's talking about how other people were talking to various people. I just, I want to make sure that everybody listening understands that there's some, some language in this and also there's a story that she tells about something that happened on the farm. Um, I just kind of want to give a heads up to everybody and let them know that there's a, a couple trigger warning slash uh, adult content information uh, in the stories that she tells. Um, so I'm putting that out there. Eleanor has a cat that was pretty vocal during this conversation I did my best to get the mews and meows out but there are a couple places where uh, the cat was intertwined with the conversation so be patient I did my best Uh, there is some cat action okay Eleanor was born in 1921 she's an American journalist a playwright university professor costume designer uh theater actress, and a mental health professional. She has won honors and awards for her advocacy work on behalf of families and individuals with mental illness. In 78, think about that, 1978, mental mental health and mental illness was not something people talked about. But in 1978, she founded the Washington Advocates for the Mentally Ill, and the following year in Wisconsin, she co-founded the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. Uh, She, this is a a huge public initiative in the United States. It's, uh, the organization encompasses over 1,200 affiliates. Uh, So that's insanely cool. Uh, Offices can also be found in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and Canada. In other words, she has been a badass for a really long time. You know, it was interesting, um, my episode that I put out, uh, 108, with Pat Hodge, she also was, uh, at the time of the recording, 96, and she's 97 and a half at this point. And that was an incredible story. Uh, Pat was the daughter of sharecroppers. And uh, again, episode 108, I encourage you to hear that story too, because Pat's life is extraordinary, and as is Eleanor's life. Uh, I find it really important to talk to people who are of a certain age, who have seen this country in its morphing, and who remember well enough to tell stories and talk about it. So... Uh, I really appreciate that Eleanor. She had me over for lunch. She had made me this beautiful lunch, and we had some wine and talked about her life and the things she's done and her family and her upbringing. We zig and zag here and there, but you know that's conversation for you. And I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so excited for you to hear this episode. Usual stuff, of course. I'll put links on the links page on HeyHumanPodcast.com. Uh, for you to find out more about Eleanor and just some of the things we talked about. Um, Social media, you know by now probably Susan Ruthism for my personal stuff and Hey Human Podcast for Hey Human stuff. Uh, SusanRuth.com if you want to know more about me in general. And if you want to email me, please do so. Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I would love to hear from you please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. It's hugely uh, important and helpful. And for those of you that have already rated and reviewed the show, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, Yeah. Oh, and the Amazon portal. Another thing, if you shop Amazon, if you go through the heyhumanpodcast.com website, there's an Amazon portal. Click on that and do your shopping on Amazon like you normally would. And it helps support Hey Human. So... I appreciate that as well. All right. uh, I am on the road right now. So I'd love to tell you what's coming up next week, but I have no idea. (laughs) So you will find out when I find out, pretty much. Oh, for those of you in Seattle, on May 19th, I'll be performing improv at the Pocket Theater, which is uh, in Seattle. So please come to that. The show's at 7 p.m. Tickets are online. You can find information at SusanRuth.com. Do it and come up and say hello and say, hey, I listen to Hey Human, and that will be very cool. All right, um, that's all I got. I hope you enjoy the show, and here we go. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Hi, Eleanor. Hi. Thanks for being here. Susan, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for being on Hey Human. And especially thank you for the delightful lunch. This was fantastic.
1: I love showing off.
0: Well, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, so I was introduced to you. I'm, I'm here. We are in Seattle in your kitchen, and uh, I was introduced to you through a mutual friend, Kathy and Karen. I guess Karen technically, um, and uh, who are family to me. And you're in a writing group with Karen, is that right? Uh-huh,
1: yeah, right.
0: So. Um, Karen said, oh my gosh, you have to speak with Eleanor. She has so many incredible stories, and I was very excited.
1: And why does she have all these stories?
0: Well, and how how
1: old are you? Because she's very old, right? How old are you? She's going on 97. It's amazing.
0: (laughs) And uh, pretty much more kick-ass than uh, some 70-year-olds I know, so good on you.
1: (laughs) And, And at some point you're going to have to ask me, so how do I do it? How do you do it? You keep your teeth. Yeah. Good <laughs> flossing. Nice. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and, and you get and you get the right genes.
0: Yeah. Genes absolutely. help. And you're, are you 100% Italian? Am I? 100% Italian?
1: I am. Both parents. Both what, parents. What part and of I have, uh, my father came from uh, around Naples. Okay. My mother came from around uh, Rome, mm-hmm. from Chieti, mm-hmm. and I grew up. In Brooklyn, Mm. doing uh, Prohibition and the Great Depression. My father was a classic manic depressive. We had a still. He bootlegged. He made lots of money doing all sorts of quasi-legal things. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, it's true. It's really true. Were you aware
0: of how how many children?
1: My mother had nine children in 13 years. And you were? And I was the eldest girl. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I really, I was, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was a surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. I, I, my siblings still tell me. And I have three younger siblings. One is 92, one is 93, one is 94. Roughly a year and Your mother and a half.
0: was a very busy woman. Oh,
1: she was, she was. And she was a remarkable woman. She truly, and this was her... Basic philosophy, she pretended nothing, never pretended anything. If she could be tender, she could be sacrificial, she could be cruel because she did not pretend. And even though it was a chaotic childhood, very chaotic because my father was a classic manic depressive and so we went from having maids and chauffeurs and fancy cars to nothing, practically. That uh, she, she, to me, the, the reason I started writing Mama's Fireflies really was to celebrate this woman who ran away from home when she was seven. Her mother had lied to her and she left her left her mother's house, went to live with her grandmother, never stepped foot in her mother's house until we, her seven children, put her on a Mediterranean sailing ship and said, we're not stepping into your house anymore until you go home and make peace with your mother. Her mother said she was going out to buy embroidery thread. And this was two years after her, my mother's father had died. My mother, my mother's father died when they, she was five, and when she was seven, her mother said she was going out to buy embroidery thread. She had a small embroidery shop, and my mother followed her and saw her meeting this man in the park, and they were laughing. They were laughing, and my mother would say, and I saw her walking with him with her hand over that shoemaker's arm. So, she lied, and when she said she was going to marry him, my mother said, I threw my spoon down on the table, and I told her, if she puts that man in my father's bed, I will never step foot in her house again. At seven? At seven. That's, wow. At seven. There's yeah. a child that knows her mind. <laughs> and, uh, and she emigrated with an aunt uh, who came with four children. Uh, when my mother was seventeen, mm. and my mother really was a feminist who didn't know the word, but she raised her boys to respect women, never lift a finger, never touch a woman in anger, <laughs> and she uh, she said we girls all had to have careers of our own. Mm. And this was in the 20s and 30s.
0: Uh, How did she meet your father? How did she... Meet your father?
1: They met through my... She was living when she moved here, and the woman she came with is her Aunt Angelina. And Uncle Tony, her husband, had a barbershop. And my father would come to the barbershop, and Uncle Tony... Would say to an Angelina at night they were having supper. She, my mother said he never looked at me. He would tell Aunt, he would tell an Angelina. He would say, you know, there's this young man who comes, gets a clean shave, wears silk shirts, gold cufflinks, lots of taste, good shoes. He has a fancy uh, wagon and a strong horse. Some girls got to be very well-off someday. It's very ambitious. And so my, my uh, I, I, the man then asked, my father, asked Uncle Tony, he said, you know, who is that beautiful girl with the black hair that leaves early, early in the morning and walks across the Williamsburg Bridge? He said, I could give her a ride. And Uncle Tony said, well, she does that because she's saving her nickels. She saves her nickels. And he said, well, I would give her a ride, she could save the nickel. So Uncle Tony said, well, I'll ask her. So when he asked my mother, my mother said, is he afraid to ask himself? So, so Uncle Tony took that as an invitation for my father to address my mother. And, my, and so my mother was coming home the next night, and my father went up to her and he said, permiso. He spoke in Italian first, and then he introduced himself. He said that Uncle Tony, had said it was all right for him to talk to her. And he said he could give her a ride in his wagon, and she could save the five cents. She said, I'll never ride behind a horse. If you had a car, that would be different. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And he was in love in that <laughs> right, second, probably. <laughs> right, right. And And so that started a sort of on and off uh, courtship for about a year. And then they decided to, my, uh, my mother decided that he wanted what she wanted, which was to get ahead in this world. And they married and went to Niagara Falls, had a week's honeymoon there. My mother, nine months later, had a baby, that died within a few days because, and she never ever recovered from this, uh, at that time, this was 1916, in Brooklyn there was an epidemic of, they called it in those days, infantile paralysis. Thousands of babies and young children died within two months, thousands of them, and the was quarantined and buried in a, in a group grave that my mother never knew. She never, When I did the research on my memoir, I found out that he was buried in Potter's Field, in the Bronx, in uh, New York. Uh, but she actually, she never, she never got over the the pain of that. And and then my eldest brother was born on the day Modestino had died, a year later. Wow.
0: And... Do they I, know now what he died of? What it actually was?
1: That at the time?
0: That what they thought of at the time, but what you might not... What you know now?
1: Well, uh, it's, I think my mother did not know. Oh. They just knew that it was an epidemic. Okay. All right. I think they knew it was an epidemic, yes. yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and and uh, actually, I found out when I did the research on just trying to be sure I had everything, the Mm. dates right for the memoir. But one of the really sad things in terms of what happens in a family and with a mother that is absolutely true in expressing her feelings, that she was sacrificial she would She would have given, we knew she would have given her life for any of us, but every year on my brother Francie's birthday, she would light a candle for Modestino, and she would say, when you were born, I didn't want you. I wanted Modestino. I carried you, and the whole time I carried you, I drank my tears. That's what I... That's what nourished me. Wow. And I know, I know. Holy and then, moly. And, then, and I remember, I write about this one. I was about, I must have been six or seven, and I remember my brother turning from where we were around the table, and he bent down and untied and retied his shoelaces, and then got up and left, which is why I remember it. Uh, but she uh, and my father was one of those macho brutes. He was an Italian, hot-tempered, um, um, brutal. He was really I, the one. Uh, an episode it, it, when he was making all this money, lots of money. We had maids, chauffeurs, dancing lessons, music lessons, fancy homemade clothes. Uh, he bought a beautiful uh, uh, Victorian-like storybook house on a small farm in upstate New York. And we used to vacation there. And this one, uh, and this was very early on, I would say maybe 1928, maybe uh, about that, that era. And he said to my mother, he was afraid that the pipes would freeze, so he was going up that weekend to check on the pipes. And my sister Mildred, his pet, said, I want to go with you. Younger, my, this Mildred's a year and a half younger than I am.
0: And they were very close.
1: We we're, were all of us a year oh. and a half apart.
0: Yeah, but no, I mean, uh, you said his pet, so...
1: Oh, she was my father's pet. Okay, got oh, it. Oh, no question. Yeah. Right. Well, she was the only blonde, and she was the only one with curly hair. Mm. And she was the only one he had a uh, pet name for. She was Minky, mm-hmm. and the rest of us were just who we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my mother said, well, you can't go alone, so I would, uh, uh, Eleanor would go with you. And so the two of us went, and my mother said, now be sure they have hot cocoa before they go to bed, and here's an enema a bag, fill it with hot water so you get the sheets nice and warm, and all of this. And before we arrived at our house... My father stopped at the Elks Club in Newburgh, which was outside of where we live, and to get milk. And I said I had to wee-wee, so he said, okay, come on in. And he showed me where the ladies were, was. he says, wait here, I'll be back for you as soon as I get the milk. Well, he wasn't there, so I walked out, and he was talking to... Uh, a woman in a thin lovely thin woman with a blue beret in her and her curly and her hair was curled with a curling iron i don't know if they still have those curling irons the ones that are pleated the pleated yeah. pleated mm-hmm. curling iron yeah and she had a lovely blue beret yeah, and she had, very stylish like uh, right, that and long beads and and um, she and uh, she she sort of Pushed his shoulder slightly, slightly, and he and he had to and he had to hang, had to. And he was he almost lost the the milk in the in the bottle, and he reached over and he kind of tweaked her ear, and then she pushed him a little harder, and then did a little dance step, and then he danced. So and then he noticed that I was there, so he came over right away, and then he looked back, and here was this. Woman. and suddenly I realized she had on this bright red lipstick and beautiful white teeth. And she said, see you, and we left. And we went home and my father was putting, getting the furnace started right away, doing everything in a hurry. And finally the bed was warm, we'd closed off all this, the dampers and the rest of the house. And he said, it's time, okay you kids go to bed, I'm gonna work on the furnace and what have you. And after a while, I heard the car, the gravel of the wheels of the car, and I jumped out of bed and I looked out the window and it was just rolling back out the drive and then halfway down to the highway, the motor started and the lights went on. And the next morning, he was whistling and everything was just, and he said, well, he said, you know, it's gonna gonna be cold next week, I might have to come back. Okay, we went home, and I have to tell you the business about the lipstick. Not only uh, did he say this to my Aunt Mary, his eldest sister, when Dolly, her 16 or 17-year-old daughter, put lipstick on. First, you let them wear lipstick. Then they start to smoke. Then they become a putan. Then they become... Oh, 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 then, yeah. oh pu- yeah. Then they get syphilis. Then they die with scabs all over them. You can't even have an open casket.
0: <laughs> Is this your auntie?
1: Yes. So, and I thought, well, he didn't seem to mind that, that this... <laughs> the other woman, had, woman had lipstick on So, but that week when my sister Mildred and I came back from our dancing lesson, I said, you know, Mama, maybe you should take dancing lessons. Oh, she said, dancing lessons are only for children. I said, no, no, Papa likes to dance. I said, what do you mean he likes to dance? And I said, well, he, I saw him dance uh, at the Ellis Club. And my mother then began to prime for questions. And I said, well, he danced with this lady uh, from the Ellis Club. and Oh, no. Wait, <laughs> wait. So my, when my father came home, my mother was at the stove and he came in the door. She said, well, so you have to go back to Newburgh next week. She was furious and he, and he turned his back and went to the sink and was pretending to wash his hands, oh boy. And he said, well, if it's cold. And she said, well, is it hot in Newburgh? And he said, what are you talking about? And she took a pot lid and threw it across the room, and she said, "You make you're making, oh, you're sleeping with whores and you're making fun of your mother, the mother of your children." And she carried on like a wild woman, and he reached over and slapped her, first on one side and then the other, and she called him a liar, liar, out before I take this knife to you. And he left, and then she sat down and blood was trickling out of the one side of her mouth. And, he, and that sort of began, for me, the realization of the, the dysfunction that was going on in our lives. And at that time, I would have been seven. So my mother continued to have oh and this is what I couldn't understand. Oh what happened was that my aunt Mary and that his his older sister and his younger sister came to the house begging my mother to have him come back home. It wasn't fair. And my aunt Mary said, "You know, that's how Italian men are, if especially especially if a woman is pregnant. And my mother, apparently, was five months pregnant. So I was eight. Now that's, uh, and, uh, uh, and my mother said, um, you come, you, and she called him. We were not allowed to either speak or listen to Italian mm-hmm. at home. My mm-hmm. father pro- prohibited anyone from speaking Italian. Interesting. Yeah, no, oh, oh, that was very true of the time that. I uh, wanted to make sure that you. became a, a truly yeah. assimilated yeah. as Americans. Yeah. And now we have English as a second language. I mean, this is just part of the, one of the major changes. Mm-hmm. And while I'm speaking about major changes, the major change between the era that I grew up in, and the era that this past generation or two has grown up in, is this. My mother was typical of most mothers. We lined up on our way out the door to school. A teaspoon of cod liver oil, a chunk of of tangerine or apple, and a lecture. Do nothing to make your mother ashamed. You went down the stairs. Someone said, Obey the teacher. You went, the policeman on the corner said, Obey the teacher. You don't want to make your mother ashamed. So there was all of, and the church reinforced restraint and respect. Restraint and respect. You got it everywhere. It was just 24 hours, seven
0: God, it's very...
1: And now it's... And I actually feel that the ACLU and social workers are changed the way, changed the culture in America. How so? Well... What happened and only because I've been so actively involved in the mental health system, that what happened. It's I okay. can't, no, I, it's okay No, I know. He, he he thinks it's supper time where he gets his tasties. Oh uh, does he That's need
0: a tasty? Think? Does he need a treat?
1: Should I give him a yeah, treat? Yeah,
0: do you want a treat? He's a pretty kitty.
1: Oh he's a oh. oh he's a smart cat.
0: Yeah, he knows if I if I cry that a lot, was, I'll get he's a, a
1: very treat smart cat. The reason I say ACLU. Now, I also have to preface this by saying you're talking to an old lady that marched in New York City on behalf of unions Mm -hmm. and even on behalf of socialists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I feel what happened in the 1960s with a a new awareness of civil rights there was a new awareness may have been beneficial to some people but actually created a horrible situation for people with bona fide mental illness Uh, what what we really and truly did in the 1960s we closed down those horrible hospitals they were like but they were asylums Now we need to remember, and you have to keep this in perspective. No medications. We did not have medications, so of course people were put in restraints.
0: Mm-hmm. And they there were shocked.
1: And electric convulsive therapy. Yes. They were. Uh, uh, they were
0: in dozens and dozens, naked in rooms. They
1: were not only hosed down. Yes. They were, it was horrible. horrific. Yeah. But. How else could you care for them? There was no other way. That is how when a person, many people, we forget this. Many people when they are floridly psychotic are wild. They will hit, they will bite, they will they kill. kill. They think, yeah. fa- well, so we forget that. We forget that is a factor in the illness. Social workers pretend that's not true. That's because of what I'm going to tell you. When truly psychotic individuals, say all of these recent murders of these guys, the young kids that have killed, gone into the school, their parents have begged for help. And the kid goes, and unless he is imminently dangerous and can say what day it is and what time it is and he's got a place to stay, he's not hospitalized. He's not either hospitalized and If he begins to get kind of really weird, and he's lucky enough not to go back home and get a gun, he will be put in jail, and from jail he'll go to prison. That's how we take care of the most severely ill. And it's unacceptable. This is unacceptable. I agree with you. But it it doesn't matter. Everybody agrees. No, oh, well, I
0: don't know. Not everyone, No, but. no,
1: everybody agrees that's not the, uh, the way to handle it.
0: And you're, but, so you have a, a stake in this, obviously,
1: because you have a child oh, with I have a illness. stake in it. A, I may, I may, have you ever heard of the National Alliance on Mental Illness? It, I'm, a, I'm a founder.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. thank you for that service. Yeah, yeah, I'm
1: a founder of... And oh. your son suffers? I, I, my son, I have a son with schizophrenia, I have a sister with schizophrenia, I have a cousin with schizophrenia, my father had manic-depressive illness, I mean, it's invasive, invasive. And I, when we founded the, well, here in Washington State we founded Washington Advocates for the Mentally Ill, the following year I, I co-founded NAMI. And our mission, our mission was to decriminalize people with mental illness. That was in 1979. Wow. Mm -hmm. 1979. And what has happened in the interim, we now are closing wards on state hospitals and funding cell blocks in prisons for this population. Is you know, I, I think Ken Burns needs to do a, a, a true documentary on what really has happened. And this is what really has happened. I'm going to give you an example. I am a co-founder of the Downtown Emergency Service Center. The largest homeless shelter here in Seattle, mm-hmm. currently in the nation. We have more mentally ill people, second only to New York City, homeless people in Seattle. You should ask me why.
0: Because it's a very opulent, wealthy place, is my assumption.
1: And homelessness is a thriving business. Sure. When we started uh, DESC, that's the Downtown To we started it with $90, nine zero. The net assets of that organization today are over 63 million. Wow. Most people, and when we started it, there was only one other mission that sheltered homeless people. Now there are over 100 agencies that are thriving. World, I mean, United States-wide? No, in Seattle. In oh, Se- I my mean, In this. Seattle. Wow. No, we are the large, second only second only to New York. And the housing developments and all of this they are they they are getting filthy rich on it,
0: on homelessness.
1: On home, I—I I now, and I can see. Who say are that, the
0: they? Who are the they that are getting the filthy rich? Well, they
1: are the people who are operating these uh, 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 for-profit, for-profit. Not most of them are non-for-profit. I mean, this is this is one of those fantasies. There's no such thing as a non-profit.
0: Well, wait, I'm, I'm so. You're saying that these agencies that are in place to help the homeless are actually not helping them. They're oh just no!
1: Oh no! 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 Okay. Oh, they are!
0: Oh no! Oh okay! Oh no! I wasn't sure because you, you have. A, well, they
1: are because it's a big business yeah. and we fund it yeah. and they thrive.
0: Okay. And are uh, you saying that as a causation or just as a as a matter of fact?
1: I think it's a. Uh, I think that most people would be shocked to know that it's a thriving business.
0: So is prisons. That's right. By the way.
1: That Right. See, I think most people think that we should add more uh, supported housing. Well, and this is part of, again, the, di- the difference between a generation born at the turn of the century and those born today. I truly believe that if a person is able to work. If they're able to get up in the morning, put on their makeup, go out and do this and go get their social security check, I think they have to give something back. They, I mean, we forget that most young couples now are both having to work to pay for their mortgage, to pay, save money for their kids, and to provide for someone who could be providing something for himself. I personally feel that yes, if you really if you really need help we as a nation as a as a village have an obligation to help you. But if you and and here again I'm going to say that even you and I Let's just say we had, we spent 10 years uh, on drugs or alcohol or mental illness, and we're finally stable, and we're now in a program, and we're getting our social security check, we're getting a little apartment with support, etc. So, why should I go to work for seven dollars an hour at Taco Time? Even you and I would pause.
0: Maybe. It's I mean it's a complicated issue. There it are, is, you know, and it really I think comes down to the individual more than as it always does. And uh, and some of them. Um, have no business doing it. They're able-bodied and they could go work, but they don't want to. Or, and, but there are truly people who are... Oh, no question. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this... So the, it's such a complicated issue. And it's... Well,
1: no, we make it complicated because... No, and this is... Uh, and that's why I... I uh, ACLU complicates it even further. That is, if... Uh, they, they, they pretend... Because clearly they know better. They pretend... That this person, who has lost the capacity to reason, has the ability to make a rational decision. Now, that's true craziness. Yeah. Right. And so, when... Uh, uh, and, and and it's not... We've got excellent laws in place. Yes. We really do. But see,
0: here's it. My opinion is that it's all the money that that is called to to help... If it were implemented in drug rehabilitation and mental health, things would be a thousand times better. I,
1: well, it does go there, but it goes there, and uh, it goes there for um, a very choice selection of people. The, what the mental health agencies do. And people say, well, they get money. Are you saying they're not doing anything? Well, they're getting $200,000 a year. Of course they should do something. I'm expecting them to do something. Uh, but uh, nobody graduates. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and here again, well, there are no villains. Yeah. There are even these agencies, yeah. because their income now is dependent upon that Medicaid person coming to that service.
0: Sure. Yeah, right. It's stealing uh, uh, from Peter to pay Paul. That's it. Yeah. Um, There are places in Nashville where they have a lot of homeless programs where they give them and uh, they educate them and uh, help them, uh, teaching them a trade. Or, for example, there's a guy uh, who teaches homeless how to be sous-chefs and work their way up and then finds helps find them employment in restaurants and gets uh, them off their feet and, and gives them a trade and, and a, we, a career. We, and, we
1: even do it here oh, you in do? Seattle, yeah. but it's minuscule, I mean it's just nothing, it's like 12 people versus... Uh,
0: Did, was your son ever homeless in his illness? Did he ever run away? No. Well
1: he ran away, but uh, yeah. he really was never homeless.
0: Yeah. Uh, How old was he when he was diagnosed? Seventeen. Okay.
1: He was young. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he managed to graduate from high school, but uh, actually, it is, it is he's an example of uh, the best of the mental health system, mm-hmm. the very best. He uh, uh, he was a student at Lakeside. Became very very psychotic. They managed to somehow or other, he graduated, well, because Lakeside School, most of the real academic work is done by your senior year and your junior year. And he he had a he was a national merit scholar. And then just became more and more and more bizarre. Uh, we oh I I mean I had I flew to New Orleans one time to pick him up, I flew to California one time to pick him up. He, he, uh, he managed, uh, 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 at any rate, but he was at Western State Hospital, which everyone thought was horrible. Saved his life. Saved his life. I can only say that the bad-mouthing of state psychiatric hospitals is part of the problem. And the community programs badmouth it because it takes money away from their programs to that program.
0: Follow the money, always follow the money. And you'll that's fight. it. Yeah, you, that's it. I say that over and over. And you're every, right. Every person that ever comes on this show, and we talk about these sort of socio-economic political issues, it's always follow the money. And some, and I don't know how we're
1: ever going to change that.
0: I don't either, because human yeah. beings have a strange capacity toward h- being humans,
1: <laughs> and without the humanity no, well, no. part. <laughs> have, you been, have you been watching the Vietnam?
0: I, I haven't, but I will. I, I just haven't oh, gotten to it yet.
1: Oh, it's, an, it's, it's just a... Phenomenal, a, I'm sure. It, I love uh, Ken Burns. Oh, it's a phenomenal piece of work in that what he has done, he's chosen uh, people who were actively involved in the war the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, the Americans, the officers, the guys in the, in the trenches. And what this old, well he appears old, uh, Vietnamese, he said, you know, if you're fighting in the war, talking about winning or losing, nobody wins. Everybody loses. Mm-hmm. Only the people who don't go to war. Talk about, is it a just war, who won and who lost?
0: A friend of mine, uh, Michael Wood, who I had on the show, he's a friend of mine now, um, uh, he, he posted on Twitter the other day, he talked about, somebody was saying about the kneeling for the national anthem is against Marines and, and military, and it's just so wrong, and the, and the military um, is being disrespected. And he, being a former Marine, he said, I guarantee you, if you ask any Marine in combat, all they want to do is bring themselves and their brother home, and that's it. They're not thinking about whether someone's kneeling or standing for a flag, they're just trying to get out of there alive. And it really puts it in perspective. You know, our politic convolutes the heart on so many levels, and it's a a shame.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And
0: yeah. now it's a fever pitch. You're, you're not even critical thinking by uh, disagreeing with your fellow human. Gone. People get so mad. They call you names. They, you know, they throw... Yeah. They give you... Another friend of mine got a death threat because you know, <coughs> she sang the national anthem at a sporting... At, this, at a football game and finished the anthem, respectfully so, and then took a knee in honor of what she thought was an important cause. And she's getting death threats, a 26-year-old girl, oh you know? Oh, my God. And this, is that really what you think patriotism is? I don't think so. Yeah. To me, that's just... The bullies will find whatever they can to hide behind, whether it's religion or politics or, or spirituality or whatever. A bully is a bully, and it's boring, Yeah. and it's just such gross energy.
1: See, but what is it about... See, I, I, I just want to also say about this... An uh, old uh, man said, and then I'm going to say what one of the American guys said. He said, you know what happens is when you get in a war and you kill your first man, one of them said, it's a, a uh, an adrenaline rush unlike you've ever had. That's what happens. And that, and he said, it makes savages, makes savages out of of boys. We send these 19-year-old kids in there and they get that
0: (sighs) Well, they're trained to have that. They're trained to not look at the enemy as a human, but rather an object. It's very specific, very well thought-out training. See, and I
1: think, see, I know, and I think that if you can make something an enemy, you can kill it. And so the real task is: how do you, how do you dilute the notion that another human being? who is desperate to save his family, or what have you, is an enemy. How do we do that? See, because they, I think that, regardless of what you're saying they said, I think that these kids were, that's, he'll get you, or you get him.
0: Right, well that's why the PTSD, right, and and then these guys and women come home, And the suicide rate is off the charts. Oh. Because suddenly these machines are brought back and and asked to become humans again. That's right. And then how do they find their humanity in a place where, let's be honest, uh, the United States is not great at appreciating and respecting their military once they return, once they've done their duty. We have VA stuff, yes, but, uh, I mean... There's, it's just it's not enough it's not enough for what these what these folks have gone through on behalf of their country and they come home and they're marginalized also it we we really love marginalizing folks don't we human beings
1: well but I think uh, Susan I think it's very important to um, there are groups of people who claim victimhood, when if you look, if you do your own homework, it's sort of like when I was very actively involved in changing certain laws in this uh, country, I became very much aware that all the, all the stuff you read about that piece of legislation, unless you read it yourself. Ha, <laughs> yes. You would realize that's really not what that's about. Yes.
0: But most people aren't don't really want to do the work, do they? They'd rather so, complain and not look at what something actually is. It's so how gosh, this is but how quite a do we, bummer. I'm sure yeah. but it's tr- I mean it's the truth. Yeah. yeah. But how
1: do we how do we um uh, I mean I am really very concerned. Well, I'm not really concerned because I think human beings are resourceful. They are. That
0: I And say, we can pull together like a, you know, like nobody's
1: business. I when know. when
0: we want to, we have yeah. a capacity well, when for When we have greatness.
1: to. it's usually when we have to.
0: Yes, there are moments though when you know, it's I try my hardest to keep up on the good news of the world so that I don't Completely throw in the towel.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: And there are a lot of really fantastic people doing altruistic things. Oh, oh. Not for their own gain. Some do it quietly and mightily.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And And so I
0: try and remember that. Yes. Do I think we're also a disaster? (laughs) But that's the duality of man. We are a disaster, and we are beautiful. We are. We are all these things.
1: But how? How do we have a dialogue about that? See, we don't really... We really,
0: have podcasts and radio shows, and we listen. We we allow space. I think these days it's so much easier to, A, just believe something somebody tells you and then regurgitate it without doing That's anything.
1: what I'm talking about. Yeah. You can't do that.
0: Well, but we're no, all, it's no, not we, healthy to do that, for sure. Well, and and we causes, all do it. I agree. Absolutely, I agree. And but um, I... For me, the space is everything. I've had a lot of conversations with people that I don't agree with at all. But I don't yell at them. I don't scream at them. I certainly don't threaten to kill them. Um, I don't believe a human being has the right to hurt another. I don't like bullies. I'm a big fan of the underdog. But I also believe that unless I know what somebody who thinks completely opposite of me thinks, Uh, I'm not putting my money where my mouth is, you know? I believe in the space in between. That is where the growth happens. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I do it, maybe someone else will do it. I don't do it all the time. I try my hardest to. Yeah. You know? I find myself putting my hand over my mouth (laughs) in conversation to keep myself from saying something when I'm feeling extraordinarily... uh, excitable I'll just I'll listen with my this is literally I'll put my hand over my mouth so that I will be forced to listen to someone until they're done saying what they have to say so that my excitability about the topic whether I'm for or against won't get in the way
1: yeah because that
0: just makes me a jerk
1: yeah <laughs> you yeah, know no, that's quite wonderful yeah well, well it, it, is. Is what
0: it is it's a practice yeah. that I have been doing for you know Because I was a classic, at 20, everyone knows everything.
1: Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, when I think of my life, and I think if you think of your life, do you think that you thought at 20, I didn't either. No, I I don't think so. Not really. I thought I did not begin to even know myself. Nope until I was uh, until I had my kids actually you know
0: were you a a strong sense of self child
1: you know I was I was uh, I really had a dual uh, life I did everything I had to do uh and then there was this personal um, dissociate, And I actually, as a child, I did disassociate on, in panic situations. I was over there as well as over here. So I was, uh, I, I, was um, I didn't have any sense of myself, actually. I had no sense of my own identity. I felt responsible for caring for my younger siblings and doing this and excelling at school. And, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, when we talk about identity, I don't, uh, I, 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 I write about this story of my going to confession, when I was like seven, and, bless me Father, for I have, this is the ritual you go through, bless me Father, I was in my last confession was last Saturday, and then I said, this week I didn't spit at my brother's, I didn't put chewing gum under this, I didn't do that, I made all the baby bottles, I was perfect. No, No response, and I thought he was deaf, so I went closer, I said, I was perfect. And then he put his face up against, and I could smell Uncle Pete's liquor breath, and he said, you say you have been perfect. No mortal is perfect. I know you have had evil thoughts. Seven Hail Marys, seven Our Fathers, on the pews without the be- the pads, slam the door.
0: This is your uncle? Literally your uncle? Pardon me? Your literal uncle was the priest? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> he
1: just smelled like
0: Okay, him. got it.
1: And... I walked down to that row of votive candles and I thought, I don't know what he means by evil thoughts. I don't know what he means by evil thoughts. And then this is, I had this disassociation and was over there. And she said to me, he knows what evil thoughts are. And so, the next day, at Sunday church, I looked at Father Alonzo, and he had a little gravy stain here. And oddly enough, I criticized his socks. One One was, they were both black, but one was ribbed, and one was plain, and they had a thread hanging from the hem, the loose hem, and his fingernails had little, and my brothers, my two brothers on either side saying, the bell rang to go up and get the the host. And I hung on to that seat and I said, I wouldn't move, I just wouldn't move. So both my brothers poked me and I would not move, I would not move. And we got home and my brother Albert said, you know, she must have peed her pants, she wouldn't get up to take the coat, but her, her dress isn't wet, so? And my mother said, my mother always concerned. did anyone touch you? No, 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 it touched me.
0: Oh, you mean sexually? Oh, okay. This was
1: oh, touch. that was the... the yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, 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 she said, so why didn't you take the communion? I said, nothing. And she said, what happened? I said, nothing. She said, what do you mean nothing? Nothing's nothing, nothing. What happened? I, uh, why didn't you take it out? I said, Father Alonzo's hands are dirty. And she picked up something because she said, okay, you don't have to go to that Mass. Oh, my
0: goodness.
1: It's true. It's a true story.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, and so, and that made, uh, I thank Father Alonzo because he made me a questioner of authority. I thought, if the priest can have evil thoughts and pretend... That he's also holy. Whatever those evil thoughts were, again, they were well, well, because you did. I had no idea they were much worse than whatever anything could have been. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, wow.
0: Well,
1: but I thank him because I question. Boy, do I question.
0: Yeah, good for you.
1: I mean, well, everyone. No, a curious mind is sexy. <laughs> well, you know, curiosity is, a, is, a, is, is helpful, but I, I don't take what anyone repeats or that I see, I hear on the news, or that, like someone's opinion about something. I watch Channel 9 and also Anderson Cooper. So PBS. Yes. Yeah. But they're quoting... They're, they're, most of them are quoting, and they're giving uh, less so there than on uh, what is it, CNN. They're giving their opinions about, about something. Of course. Based on whatever their opinions are. And
0: they're trying very hard to scare us into those opinions.
1: They try. On
0: either side. I mean, it's, yeah, I think everyone's
1: guilty They try, but unless I read that legislation myself, they are mostly wrong. That has been my experience.
0: It's been my experience as well, actually. Yeah, they,
1: yeah. they, um, uh, and, and whatever, and it's mostly what you're not told. <laughs> yes, isn't is it? is its what you are not told. Say
0: lying uh, by omission is a very powerful tool.
1: Oh, the greatest. Yes, it is.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's absolute.
1: Yep. Uh,
0: did you know when your father was a bootlegger that he was a bootlegger? How did that how did that figure in with your your that mom's he, that religion? That he was a what? That he bootlegged uh, whiskey, you know, an alcohol. He was running oh, alcohol. Well, if your mother oh, was, was oh, religious, he was.
1: Then. No, he and and he defended it. Mm. He said, "This is a law that has to be changed. Mm. You can't. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution." He would say, "Nothing in the Constitution that says." A man can't make whiskey for his own family there's no nothing nothing in the Constitution so all, and this Protestant lady she's going to get um, um, knocked over or what have you the and he said and those smart jew lawyers they're on our side they'll they'll change it so he uh, oh, oh, we, we, well we couldn't the well this is another one of those things I write about we You know, when you come from a large family, everything is knowable. Everything is knowable. There's no such thing as a secret in a large family because you sleep three to a bed, you're 24-7 alert as to what's going on. Everybody is, so it's not just one person. It's sort of, so you've got seven different or eight different points of view, and you put it all together at some point, and you get perspective. So you get perspective. And that's why I feel, I know this is unfortunate, because all you young people, and I myself only had two children, small families, Miss a certain developmental phase, they do. They, 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 they you, you just, and I did because I taught for so many years. I tested this on, on students, preschool through graduate level. Kids who come from families of four or more have a certain kind of view, a certain kind of perspective. They are not the center of the universe, they know how to compromise, they know how to uh, restore order, because they know what can happen if chaos reigns.
0: My best friend, Ellen. Hi, Ellen. She listens diligently because she's awesome. She uh, she's from a family of with five children. Perfect. Oh,
1: she's and so old. you're so
0: lucky to know her. I, I because my brothers are so much older than I. It, you might as well have maybe yeah. an only child yeah, at a certain right. age, you know. So, um, but I and I've said this a million times, but I so enjoy going to holidays at Ellen's house of because. Course. <laughs> It's crazy, and it's the best. It really is. It's so yeah. much fun, and I envy that upbringing because oh. I see how close the siblings are, and I see how oh. they get extraordinarily angry with each other, but love each other more fiercely than exactly. than anything exactly. And they have each other's back. The loyalty within that family is is extraordinary. It,
1: it is. And, yeah. And and really and truly it you don't even know you're developing that you have no idea you yes. have no was so I, you had 7 my mother i grew up with 8 i eight, grew up with so 8 uh, but the first eight. one died the first one died and the last one died
0: oh yeah so the last one died yeah
1: uh, and, uh, and and i think i think actually uh, i had taken all the kids swimming and we had to cross railroad tracks, and my youngest brother was killed on my watch.
0: Oh my God, how do you deal with that? Oh. You don't, I guess, you don't do It stays
1: that. with you forever, stays with you forever.
0: Did that alter how your mother's in your relationship, given how she was with the, I mean, it's, oh, she it's not your fault. It,
1: no, no, she, oh, well, no, it's, it's really a very telling moment in my memoir. Two men from the railroad company came to the house and my mother invited them in and they offered her eleven thousand dollars to compensate my mother's my mother my mother flew into a wild rage threw them out of the house you're paying you you're trying to give me money for my baby's life out 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 She was screaming at them, and then they left. And she turned to me and she said, "And if you had done, if you'd obeyed me and you had watched them, they never would have come. You killed my." It it was. Oh, that's awful. Well, it was awful, but it was true, you know. And her, uh, and her statement, her motto truth is always in the room she never goes away
0: amen to that yep
1: yeah and that that was um, uh, and in the same way that I'm very grateful to father Alonzo for his having made me aware of questioning authority, my mother's gift of never pretending, and I sort of need to sort of say my, that my memoir, the memoir starts when, I, oh, when she ran away at 7 and it ends when I leave home at 17. And my mother called all my sisters and I, and she said, before, I, when she and I were in the kitchen alone, she said, Charlie was my son. I should have been there, not you. Wow. Oh, that gives me the shivers. It's true. Wow. So she was really a remarkable, remarkably, wow. um, uh, she was just a profoundly honest person. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and we, uh, my sisters and I, my three younger sisters and I, talk almost every day, even though we live on different parts of the country. And, and, um, and my mother went on, after we all left home, she went on to, at age 60, well, after we forced her to go back and make friends with the mother, she uh, came back, and at age 60 she opened an Italian restaurant, never had done it before. And, and we, 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 we said, Mama, you never worked in a restaurant. What are you doing? She said, well, the builders are coming tomorrow. And she had this small restaurant, family style, Italian restaurant built. And uh, she, she was just really remarkable. She didn't have a menu. And she refused to get a liquor license. So how can you have Italian homemade food without wine? You can. She and and uh, she would not get a liquor license. And my my brother said, you know, Mama, you're gonna. She said, if I get a liquor license, I have to serve drunks. I will not serve drunks. So, but howie, she said, I'll manage. And this is a, again true. They wrote when she died. They wrote this up in the local newspaper. She would wait until the people were seated, and then she would go out and she would make a small talk with them. If there was a little boy there, she would say, Are you minding the teacher? You have to mind the teacher. And she was very audacious as well. And if, if she wouldn't do this to new customers, but people would have been back four or five times. If there was a young girl, an adolescent girl, she would say, you want to be boss when you get married? Keep your cherry. <laughs> no, no, this is, no, she, she was just really, That's she amazing. was. amazing. Oh, she was, no, it's true. It's absolutely true, it's true. And uh, uh, she only had three rules. She really only had three rules. You uh, she, Other than that, she literally let us do whatever we wanted to do, but these were her three rules. You always tell the truth. If you're thinking about it and you don't say it, you're lying. You never steal. Not a penny, not a bracelet, never. And you stay a virgin until you get married. Those are her rules. That was it as far as she was concerned. And everything else was okay. How did the kids do? Well, every one of her girls had a baby nine months after they married.
0: There you go. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> one of them actually had it seven months. Oh, so <laughs> we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's extraordinary. Uh, so it's just, yeah, it's just very very funny. Lovely, uh, lovely. No, she so, was no, she truly, she truly was. She was a remarkable person. Yeah, she could dole out. She cursed also, she threw curses.
0: Oh, literally. Threw curses. Yeah,
1: Oh, bewitchers. They came through and they came true. Yes, like? She cursed my father when they hit her and she said, you'll die by someone, you raised your hand to me, the mother of your children, I curse you, you'll die by someone's hand and the worms will get at you in the dirt and it
0: happened he was murdered yeah wow what happened
1: uh, he he well they separated i mean they actually that is chaotic they separated when i was about 15 they separated and he moved to florida and had he had a terrible temper yeah and was a, a and also a horrible tongue, you dirty, lazy nigger bastard. Whoa. Oh, easily. Uh, that was nothing. Thanks. Yeah. And, uh, and he, uh, he had gotten into a fight with one of his employees and I'm sure must have said horrible things. The employee came back and fired him. The employee came back the next day and said he knew where he could buy a whole load of empty crates for a bargain. He was in the fruit and wholesale business. And they drove out, and the guy told him where to turn off on a, on a, a, a dirt road in some place that was um, just uh, like a forest. And him, just killed him.
0: The former employee, him did that? Yeah. Wow. Did he, yeah. did he go to jail for it? He did. Oh, he did? Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Goodness, so your mother's yeah.
1: curse. Well, and my mother cursed another one, the two curses that I write about. Polak Joe, now we kids were merciless in, in naming people, but actually Polak Joe was Polish, but that's not how his name came about. He would lock, he worked in the barn, he was a temporary employee, a hobo. And he locked the barn for fear that the calf would escape. And after he'd been there, and my mother, my mother did not want to hire that man. My father insisted that, he, because he said he would work for nothing but his meals, mm-hmm. and he could sleep in the quarters over the barn. And my brother, Francie, who was the eldest, said, you know, mommy, he said, the calf just is foundering. She won't get up. She's not eating. So my mother called the vet. Dr. Alec came, and he came back to the house, and he said, Mrs. DeVito, he said, do you have any strange people working around here? My mother said, yeah, I do, she said. He said, get rid of him. Get rid of him. And we kids, and then he moved my mother aside, and and we kids picked up, wrecked him, torn apart, Whatever. He
0: was raping the calf.
1: Raping the calf. Yeah. Raping the calf. My mother, my mother, that was the worst I ever saw her. She took a broom and she started to whack the black screen door, ripped it open, tore her dress. She, and my father, my father was working in the city. Within an hour or so. He came and she started in on him, you, cheap for cheap. And uh, she said, Go find him, get him, I'll cut it off, go get him. And she had the knife in her. It was just, her, it was just incredible. And she said, I curse him. I curse him, he's going to be found in the dirt with it cut off. That was her curse. About Two months later and we never saw him again. He did that night we never we never saw him. About two months later there was an article in the Newburgh News that a drifter had been found with his body mutilated. Mm-hmm. And said, My curse.
0: Curse. powerful woman
1: oh oh no question
0: what's the name of the memoir you are writing
1: it's called mama's fireflies Mm -hmm. and you you, i'm I'm eleanor and it's written by eleanor devito owen
0: okay so you're you're full married and and maiden name in
1: both oh my is uh, my maiden name is devito yes that's what i mean
0: so eleanor devito owen right and when will it be coming out you
1: know what when will it be coming out? Well, I'm right now. I've got three editors that want it, so I have a copy editor who's really going through to be sure that all the punctuation is what it is. No, but it's it's a compelling story. I'm going to read it.
0: I can't wait. Oh no, it's. A com- I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, there's well, not enough cake in the world. I would just <laughs> keep eating and listening. No, no, it's
1: it's a well, and I've woven in. A lot of stuff about the poverty of that time. Mm. People today have no, no
0: idea I know No idea
1: in this world
0: right yeah. uh, that uh, it is it's a shame I was just talking with a friend of mine about this the other day, uh, my friend Michelle that uh, we live in such a throwaway culture ah. and they make things to break in three years. Nobody, you know, if you hit a rocky patch with the with a loved one, let's just get divorced or break up. Nobody wants to put the work in. Nobody wants to take the old transistor and duct taped it and, and, you know, f- get new knobs or use the pliers or,
1: you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's because they really have forgotten mm-hmm. They have, I mean, this is going to sound a little arrogant, but I am a phenomenal problem solver. Mm -hmm. Young people today are not. And it's because I had to solve problems. So I mastered problem solving. I mean, I can fix, anyone who hires a plumber, I'm serious, anyone who hires a plumber to fix a drippy faucet, or a toilet that doesn't work. What's wrong with them? No, I'm serious <laughs> when I, I, I say I, that. I, I believe I mean, you. Yeah, I can't write a Wagnerian opera, but really, anything that an ordinary human being can do, I can do. Yeah. And I and I do. Yeah. You want, you want to see some lovely stained glass windows that I made uh, yeah I'd love to are they the ones that are in the, the... window yes the, the windows in well no I didn't do these I did I, I didn't do these but I did those that are in the pantry I, Ooh, that will look, have like to look. This. yeah they're easy but here again it's easy yeah I mean it's just an ordinary you have to know how to measure you have to take time uh, but and anyone who hires a painter I mean if you if you You might hire a painter because you don't have the time or what have you. That's different. Yes. But not to know how to paint.
0: Right. Inexcusable. That's a a difference, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's inexcusable. (laughs) What was uh, your impetus to sit down and say, you know what, I'm 96, I'm going to write a memoir. Was there a moment where you
1: thought, oh yeah, I have... I've actually, the memoir has been 10 years.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay. It's
1: been ten years. I started it uh, shortly after my husband died, and I think what I think what happened is that my grief was so profound that I linked it with what I felt when I was fifteen. That it was that linkage of my grief that just got so many images rolling that I just started writing it, and I thought that, and and also the rise of a very, um, the feminist movement, which when I think of my mother as a feminist, she did not want power. What she wanted was truth. Feminists are seeking power. That I feel they project on what they perceive men to have. I happen not to believe that. I think men have angled their way into power positions of power. But I've never known a man... That could not be undone by a woman. Amen. Ever. Amen. <laughs> so this this grasping for power mm-hmm. seems uh, well. I don't like it. I mean, I just feel it's. I I find it. Um, uh, I find it greed. I find it as if I had to say something, I would say it's a form of misplaced greed. Mm -hmm.
0: I would argue as well uh, misplaced anger. Oh!
1: (laughs) Yeah. And truly. And I
0: I consider myself a feminist, but not... uh, It's funny, I had a feminist on the show, uh, Chloe Stillwell. who it was a lovely conversation and we did not see eye to eye on on a few topics. it's funny it's that word has been so vilified anyway, but I I don't feel I need to acquiesce to any man. Oh, but I do enjoy a door opened for me. Oh, right. I'm still a feminist if I like a door opened for me. And, and some feminists would argue that that is not true, but it is for me. Right, right and to be a feminist is to allow a woman to be who she is so by telling me that i'm not a feminist if i like doors opened (laughs) you know then aren't you missing the point of your own concept of what a feminist is a feminist is a woman who is in control of her
1: own life and is on
0: equal footing and
1: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway.
0: Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, People right. like just to be mad, though. I mean, I don't, it, whether you're a, uh, it, it doesn't matter who a person is. If they, if they adore being angry, if that is their, their first go-to, then they're just going to be that way. And you can throw a label on anyone, but right. really yeah. the bottom yeah. line is always, you know, are you an angry person? Are you a happy person? Are you empathic to the world? Right, Do you love yeah. yourself enough to love others, even in the spite of and, and
1: disagreements, why, yeah. You know. And why is there such um, see? I, even and, and I know you, uh, you, uh, this is going to this is going to be sound dangerous, but I'm going to say it anyway. I went to a writer's workshop uh, last week, and the person who spoke was talk, talking about diversity. She was a black woman mm-hmm. talking about diversity, and she carried on at great length about her color being the thing that um, um, was stigmatized, mm-hmm. and and and, and I, what? And this is what I think. And she was quite, uh, she was not a black, black, black woman. She was sort of, uh, I would say, a Uh light-skinned. And uh, Sicilian women are darker than, and people from India are darker. So she is equating color, and she's not really getting to... What's underlying that? Because color, when when I look at the world, I see people who are darker. Sure. So her focus on color is she's she needs to, I felt, she needs to say, look at, is it the fact that we were slaves that I'm really resenting and that we had masters who were white, or is that those white masters raped our mothers? I mean, what is it?
0: It may be all those things.
1: All of it, it probably is. Yeah, I would
0: imagine. But
1: but to simply focus on, and she was advising writers, she was advising writers about how not to use certain expressions. Mm Well, I've used them in my memoir. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think you have to be historically oh. accurate, personally. I mean, I've I've discussed this many a time. And I, I can't speak for an African-American woman or man because no. I'm a white person, whatever that even means. I'm yeah. actually more green, but, you know, that's whatever. But I think perhaps, and I can't speak for her, I don't know, but I assume what she was maybe trying to say is that it is... It is what's on the outside that she is seen as first, before anyone even gets to a point of, like, are you angry because your mothers and your grandmothers were raped by these men? And, you know, I mean, there are... I know, but
1: if, you, but, but if we carry... I mean, if we carry a certain feeling that... Uh, and, again, I, I, can't, I don't know what she's sure. feeling... Of course. But her emphasis on, on color... I think is missing the point. I even think black is beautiful or the the focus on color shouldn't be where the discussion is.
0: Well it's an in, it's an interesting point and I have heard that before is that um, that it's that's the um, if, if it was a strata that's the top layer and it's actually not even the point.
1: Right. Know, the yeah. point but is we, historical. But, but I'm very old. When are we going to get beyond We we
0: never will. And that's not me being a pessimist. That's me understanding the human condition. We, And again, this is something that comes up a lot in this podcast, is I believe that human beings are constantly seeking that which is a mirror of themselves. And until we actually see humanity as the mirror, we will um, pick and choose what is familiar and makes us feel good about ourselves.
1: Right. And maybe even, maybe even, and I think this is a discussion we're not ready to have. Well, some people are ready to have it. But maybe on a very primal level, we have an inbuilt need to protect what we identify with as us. Yes,
0: I totally agree. And
1: that. as long and until we are all the same genetic makeup, we will continue. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Well, yeah. and the irony of that is, we are the same genetic
0: makeup. I mean, if I, I often say this as well that if children, elementary school, fourth grade, let's say, as you're starting to understand your own identity, which what begins around. First grade, something like that, but it's somewhere around the fourth grade where you can actually have a conversation about it. If they gave all children a genetic test so we could see and then talk about it in class, like this is your continence, and these are you know, and that we were all actually truly a mishmash of so many things. Yeah. That maybe that would change the conversation, but to that end, I think it might change that conversation. But it wouldn't change the fact that then on the school in the schoolyard, little Billy would point at little Susie and say, "Oh my gosh, your toenail is so long. You're weird. I hate you." And then throw it. You know, that's just the way people
1: are. Can I tell you something that actually happened with my own kids? Hmm. We used to live uh, in South uh, around Rainier Beach, and my kids went to Dunlap School. Mrs. Hallie, the kindergarten and first grade. Bless you. I mean, first grade teacher was black
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the kids were sitting around the table doing something or other and someone said uh, something about uh, Mrs. Halley being colored and Elaine Puccini said Mrs. Halley is colored? oh she hadn't no idea right. she hadn't seen it
0: yes That's why children can be so lovely. See,
1: and that's that's what I want, I would love to see, blacks talking about. What happens between that stage right there at 6 and 16? What goes wrong?
0: Well, but we, Uh, we will never know because we were not born... You know, with a with a pigmentation to our skin that will put us in particular situations that we couldn't. Well, see, and, and, but,
1: I, I don't see, I don't buy that. I mean, I grew up where Waps were called dirty Waps.
0: I I get you. I've been called lots of names because I come from a mixed mixed family.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all religiously mixed. We all we everyone. I mean, to pretend and that and that's what I uh, to pretend that some or other. Because I'm white. I can't really know. Well, I can't. The truth is I can't really know. That's right. Not really. Because if that person is feeling it, say, I walk down the street and no one knows that I'm Italian.
0: That's right. No. It is a very obvious thing to be. Right. To be African American. Yeah. Right, right. And... Uh, You said something about historically, the the, the woman in your writer's group said, or that was teaching that writer's group said, oh, there are certain words you shouldn't use. I think historically, and I will use uh, Harper Lee as a great example, or Mark Twain for that matter, that is a historical moment in time. And if you take out those words, which are certainly... I would never use the N word, you know, other than to talk about what that word means. But not—I would never. It's just not in my vernacular. I don't think it's appropriate. I'm not interested in using that mm-hmm. word. And um, but if you take it out of these historical works, you're robbing an entire well, people. That is, yeah, that's how people were. And if you don't speak to the past, you are doomed to repeat it. And I say that, and I know that's a cliche, but. I think it's true. I mean, it's a... I can't speak for somebody who isn't me. It's the only person I can speak for. Right? Right, So, I look at you, and you know, you could be... My family, and I'm not Italian, there's no Italian. In- I did my DNA workup. There's no Italian in there. Oh. There's Russian, there's Polish, there's Swiss, there's German, there's a tiny bit Asian, which would explain my eyebrows. Which what is wrong. that? What is this? Asian, like? oh, oh. my eyebrows, oh, I eyebrows, they're very yeah. hard to pluck, <laughs> and, uh, and 2.7% Neanderthal. So oh, well, know. I'm
1: for I'm for Ander- Neanderthal and I'm Denis Den- 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 Denovian uh-huh. whatever, but I also go back. I'm Jewish. Ah, yeah, Lebanon. Really? So I have, yes. There you go. Yeah. Oh, and I feel Jewish.
0: Yeah. Well, I the mean, Italians, the Jews, the Greeks, we're all the same. All the same. Everybody. Oh, that's right. Yeah.
1: And not only that, I know, knowing my mother, and kind of knowing myself that as Christians during the pogroms, no, as Jews, if I, if my mother was a Jew, my mother, 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 all the way back, she took that menorah out of that window and put a cross in it. I know, I would say that I know I would do it. To stay alive. I would, I, you know, here I've got three or four kids or whatever the average family was at that time. Yeah, I would do it. Yeah, because uh, Oh, I know I would do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think God would turn his or her nose down at that either. I think <laughs> that's a that's again human condition to point at yeah. what is different and somehow vilify it. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, but you went back and you found Asia. See, I had I did the National Geographic. Uh-huh. Did you do that I one? I did 23 of me. Okay, so mine was not as
0: detailed. Mine was very detailed, yeah. Really? Yeah, it was fascinating.
1: And how much did you pay?
0: Uh, At the time, this was Probably five years ago, I believe it was a Christmassy time. It was ninety nine dollars. Oh, I paid
1: one hundred and twenty nine. Yeah, I think they've gone up. Yeah, yeah yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah.
0: But you know, I mean, turn us inside out, and somebody would hate the color of our blue vein versus our red vein. It's just, it's just humans. And and you say, I hope there'll be a time when that isn't the case. Oh, I do too. I really oh, do. I do. But until then, all I can do is sit across from people at kitchen tables. And look at them and say I'm you and you're me and even if we don't agree on stuff we are of the same
1: well this isn't that my husband was born and raised in Dallas hmm a racist your husband was a racist oh a racist really but highly educated and this was his reason he said well I look at all of civilization and I try to see what group of people have made the greatest contributions to mankind? So the Jews. So German Jews are really the uh, the top of the heap and uh, <clears throat> Just out of
0: curiosity is your husband Jewish? Pardon me? And just out of curiosity was your husband Jewish? No. Oh, okay. No, I, I was no. Wondering. That no, really no,
1: no. No, okay. actually no. Uh, and, uh, and he would go about that was his intellectualizing, and that blacks have not, according to you, blacks have not made contributions to benefit mankind.
0: Mm, see, I don't agree with that at all. But well, I know. I'm already
1: telling Yeah. He had all of his life, I knew he, he had only three friends in his entire life. An Asian guy, a Jewish guy, a black guy.
0: Isn't that interesting? I interviewed a uh, Grand Dragon in the KKK for this podcast,
1: in oh, well, I... episode
0: thirty. Grand Dragon the KKK, Richard Nichols, and we sat down and talked. Oh, and, yeah, and uh, he believed that there was zero contributions made by African Americans to. Uh, this country, and as far as, I mean, he really truly believed that.
1: Oh, and my husband did too. Yeah, well, so
0: a few a little, and I've told this story, and I'm you know, people listening are like, Oh, we've heard this story. But a few weeks after the interview, he reached out to me, he emailed me a list of African American inventors, and uh, he said, Is this real? You know, you can't trust anything on the internet, kind of thing. Um, he said that these people really do what it says that they did. And so I researched it for him uh-huh. and I got back to him and I said, you know what? Uh, there are a handful of people, there's three or four people on here that um, that reinvented the wheel. They took something that was already invented, they made it better. I said, but every other man and woman on this list, absolutely 100% invented what it says they did. And we're talking like what? Ca- like, Yeah, like cataract lasers for the eyes, like a, a woman developed that. Um, uh, the very first stoplight was invented by an African-American oh, there's like, yeah, So there's, 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 it's a whole list it's all sorts of medical stuff and, and science-y things and you know whatever so, and, what? and, but what? so here's the thing so I, I wrote it back I said here's the deal and yes all these other African-Americans invented these things and, and this is who they are and this is why they did it and what their lives were like which inspired the invention and yada yada and send it back to him. And this man wrote me back and just said, that's so cool.
1: Oh, how nice. Oh, that's really nice. So
0: you just, you don't oh, know what you know it until you what, know. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. You don't know what well, you and, know and, until you and know.
1: And here again, say, so we, I have no idea about any other uh, ethnic groups and what they, what the, what the, ch- I know when I went to Greece, I had an aha experience. No, I went to Turkey, it was Turkey, and as That's you went place. through, it was wonderful, when, and I thought, you know, Eleanor, here you are, well-educated, well-read, but you believed that somehow or everything started with the Greeks and the, Greeks and the Romans. I did. Mm. I know. I, I mean, it's just one of those crazy uh-huh experiences that we don't know what we don't know. That's right. Right. Uh,
0: the other thing that I find fascinating about racism or bigotry or or anti-whatever, insert religion you hate here, you know, whatever, is that, especially when it comes to people who do believe in religion um, and the Bible as as truth, is that if you are opening a book that begins with just a couple people begetting everyone, then how can you not understand then that, that, that we are all brothers and sisters? Uh, uh, no, you uh, know what I
1: mean? Oh, I know.
0: It's, a, a, no, it's illogical. No, there's no
1: logic. No, there's no logic to it. Yeah. I mean, to me, there is no logic.
0: Yeah.
1: To this, um, uh,
0: hate for hate. I have
1: hate. to say, I have to say, my mother was the the, the only person, and I, I write about Henry Brown. Henry Brown, I. And none of us can remember when Henry Brown came to work for us on the farm. Tall, thin, old, old, old black eye, Dark, and he showed up at the back door one day and he, my recollection is he just wanted to know, he said, I can pick, I can pack, I can milk, I, you could use me around here. And my mother said, well, I, I don't have enough money to pay you on a regular basis. And he, they both stood looking at each other. And then he said, well, he said, you look like a mighty fair woman. You look mighty fair. I trust you pay me when you can. Henry Brown was the closest thing to a grandfather we ever had. Absolutely. We, we kids grew up with fabulous, fabulous black people. just absolutely wonderful. Uh, uh, and, uh, and this was partly due uh, my mother, my mother, also, the only time she ever hit my brother Albert, who was her pet. This is before we, my father lost everything. We lived in the city. And Albert was a sharpshooter with marbles. And he had lost a tiger eye to one of the uh, Kowalski boys. Oh, no. And wouldn't trade two for one. The Kowalski kid was just lording it all over him. And my mother, my mother, when my father made money, she spent money like a drunken sailor. So she was coming home. <laughs> she, she, she was, no, actually, this day was very interesting. She was coming home. And Albert and this kid were really getting, I thought, oh my God, Albert's gonna hit him because Albert was, uh, uh, and Albert said, well, and you, uh, um, and you Polacks, uh don't even own your own house and you don't have a nigger uh, made like we do. My mother whacked, hit him. And I'll never forget it because she never touched him. He was just her, her pride and joy. And I remember she said, now, you never use that word around Miriam. Miriam is a colored lady. She, you have to read. That's the word Miriam used to identify sure, herself. Sure, back that
0: was historically.
1: That's, that's absolutely. it. Absolutely. And she said, and, and you, and she carried on at great length about how, and she said, and colored people are very sensitive you have to be careful what you say around them. So she was giving Albert and all these other kids, and then she marched past him, and she said, girls, come up, because Miriam, had, my mother sang beautifully. Her father had been an opera singer, and my mother had Caruso records. And one day Miriam asked my mother, did she have any, um, uh, uh, what did she call them? Baptist uh, uh, records. My mother said, "I don't know. I don't know what that is." So Miriam sang a Baptist song, and my mother bought a record, of ba- and she said, "Come on, girls. We're going to go up, and new- you, Miriam, and we're going to sing it without the boys." <laughs> no, she was extremely in a very sort of open, honest peasant way. She was so.
0: Your mother, yeah.
1: Oh, she was. Oh, Miriam was lovely too. Miriam yeah. had a big space between her teeth, <laughs> and um, I've had a um, I've had a lot of experiences that have taught me how to accept.
0: Yes,
1: I think that my uh, what I see as the real difference in people that, even in my friends, some are truly automatically accepting of ideas, of statements, of opinions, and some are always, always, always there, there, there. And this, I think, is true of human beings. Some are always guarded. And sometimes it's kind of a, um, in psychological terms, I'd call it uh, uh, defiant, obstructive. Yes, yeah. I agree. And I think I think that if people could just examine what do I accept and be honest about it.
0: and ask themselves why they don't accept what they don't accept, yeah, I agree with
1: you. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. uh, uh, Eleanor. You are fantastic. No, no. I'm, I'm just an old lady. You'll get there. No, you will. I, I
0: mean, eventually. Oh, you will. I'm working on it one day at a time.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah, no. Thank you, uh, Eleanor. Well, may, uh, oh, thank and, you. And the book will come out and... Well, the book, when the book will come out, I'll let you know. Yes, please do. So you can let everybody yes, know. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. And it's yeah. called, one more time. It's called Mama's Fireflies. Okay. And it's written by Eleanor DeVito Owen. Growing up, in a chaotic Italian immigrant family during Prohibition and the Great Depression. And whatever you think could have happened in that family happened. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thank you.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Thanks so much.